Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm also one of the pastors on staff here at Fifth. We are excited that you are with us and that you've joined us. This summer, we're working through a series called Knowing God by Name. And we're looking at the different names of God that show up throughout the Hebrew Bible in particular in order that we may know God. Not that we know about God, that's theology or that could be forms of religion and those aren't necessarily bad things, but in an attempt to actually know God in a personal, meaningful, intimate kind of way. So we're trying to learn the names and explore that as a means by which we can understand understand. God and who God is. Our scripture reader reading for this day uh, comes from Genesis 15, uh, and it, it goes like this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you do to get, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come on any given Sunday from a variety of places. Some of us come from strength, of health, of feeling whole and complete. Some of us come from places of brokenness. Some of us come from places of shame because we have done things and said things of which we are not proud. And in all those things, we come not because we are worthy, but we come because you have asked us to, you have told us to, and that your move is always to us in our moments of joy, in our moments of fragmentation, in our moments of pain and hurt, you move towards us and invite us to do the same. So God, as we come this morning, we pray that you come to us. Meet us. Give us a word of grace, of truth, and of peace in the midst of a busy and distracted world. God, thank you for who you have made us to be, and may we encounter you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance. My head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate or how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is a poem by William Ernst Henry. Some of you have heard it, some of you have probably not. Um, But it is reflective in many ways of the times that we live. It is an interesting time uh, and an interesting thing to live in the United States of America these days. Um, And I think it shows up in a variety of ways, but one of them is embodied in this poem. We could talk about 
it's been interesting to think about this and to think about that line as I've, as I've prepared the sermon and thought and prayed about it. Uh, I'm obviously, grew up here. I am American. Uh, I'm from the United States. And I've also traveled a fair amount and I lived abroad for a couple of years. And, and it invites me to think just about who I am and who we as a nation often tend to be. Socrates invites us to know thyself, to know ourselves as a means for engaging and encountering wisdom and who we are. And I think we as Americans struggle with that sometimes. In a land dominated by hot takes and quick opinions of tweets and Twitter posts and responses and flare-ups, there is a call for us that I think Jesus has before us that invites us to a deeper way to think and to process and to live. What this poem shows, for me at least, what the poem shows, and this was written in the 1800s, uh, what this poem shows is, is a sense of the American spirit, right? Ingrained in the American story is an idea of independence and rugged individualism. You only have to look at our movies or our music or our culture and who we say we are and what we say we value. Right? And it's an independent mindset and a rugged can-do. Picture most of your movies that have been based on a true story that's made into a movie or every cowboy movie, right? Of the rugged individual who's out by himself, the lone gunslinger. Pick your motif. It shows up all over the place. Ingrained to some degree in who we are or who we think about ourselves as is that last line. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And I want you to put a pin on that. We're going to swing around to that notion again in a little bit. We're working through the names of God and what that means for all of us, right? The name for this week is the name Adonai. Uh, And and it's an interesting one. It's kind of hard to understand. To be honest, I learned it from, I learned Hebrew uh, from a Jewish theologian in my seminary. So it was attached to a broader university. And so he worked for the university, uh, but he'd come over and teach us Hebrew. So it was always interesting to hear him riff on what Adonai meant versus the other different names of God. But I thought John did a really good job of explaining how those worked last week. So I want to revisit those quick. There's, there's a couple different primary names that show up. There's, there's Lord, there's Lord, and there's God, right? So the first one is Lord, and it's the one that shows up in your Bible as all capital letters. It looks like a block when you look at it in your English translation. And it is technically the Tetragrammaton is what it's called. It's the Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, or you can stick your consonants in, we don't know. We don't know how the name is said. We know it sounds almost unpronounceable which is kind of on purpose. It is a word of breath, of intimacy. It is the relational understanding of who God is. On the other side of that is the word Elohim at the bottom of that list. And that's the word that shows up and that means God. It means plural, like Elohim is a plural understanding of God. It's not a singular word for God, which is part of the reason why we get notions of the Trinity that we as Christians say, right? So we have this uh, the formal God as in there are all the gods in the world. God is referenced like that, but the, the head of those. We have the intimate, personal, unpronounceable God. And then the word in between those is the word Adonai, which means Lord. But unlike the unpronounceable, intimate, personal understanding, the word Adonai uh, is a bit more formal. It's a bit more structured. On its face, Adonai means Lord or Master. 
It, it almost means sir or ma'am, and it reflects the power and status of an individual, right? Adonai uh, really just shows the levels of authority that someone has. And it was a very common word. It would have been used all over in Hebrew. It doesn't necessarily invoke uh, divinity and everything that it means. If you reported to someone, they could be uh, that you could use this kind of word, right? And it shows up throughout the Hebrew scriptures like this. We see it, uh, it, it show, it's a common title and it's used in references to people. So we see this in Genesis 18 where the Lord appears to Abraham uh, near the great trees of uh, Marie while he was sitting there at the entrance to his tent. In the heat of the day, Abram looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance to his tent and he met them and he bowed low to the ground. These are three people. And he says, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, that would be Adonai, right? So, so Adonai references people. It references God in the verse that we read earlier, where Abram Ha, again, has a vision that comes and God said, and Abram says to God, sovereign Lord, that word is Adonai. And it gets referenced even in angels in the book of Genesis. At some stage, two angels arrive um, and Abram says, my lords. A, Adonai is less of the holy, intimate, holy other and is more reflective of the reality of the world that we find ourselves in. I did not grow up in the military. Uh, I am not a military guy. So if I get this wrong, uh, you can come gently correct me and forgive me on this. But broadly, the way in which in military structures we reference people above ourselves as sir or ma'am is the same understanding of what would happen with Adonai. It's an understanding of power and the dynamic that goes with it. Adonai is also a function. Uh, you, you can see this in the way it plays out. Right? So it's, it's a title that often gets stacked on one another. So we see this in things like Psalm chapter 8, where, where the psalmist writes, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Or, or in Psalm 10, where, where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make uh, your enemies a footstool. Adonai at its core represents just this idea of, of power dynamics and who is in charge and who has authority. Who really rules and reigns? So to bring those two together, there's a, there's a story that I want to tell. Or it's not really a story. It's a moment that still stands out to me and has, from the moment it happened, uh, and I still think about it today. I was in uh, seminary, which is theologian grad school, right? Um, I was sitting, uh, I went to a place called Drew Theological School. It was in Jersey, uh, it used to, it looked like an old uh, colonial big building, big columns, big open windows, shutters that came apart in multiple steps, right? And we were sitting there on a, on a gorgeous spring day, the kind of spring day when you want to be outside and it's nice, but you're inside in class. And I was in a church history class, which was oddly more relevant than I ever thought it would be. To be honest, I thought this is going to be a pain in my rear. And it was really pretty good. Um, and we're in the middle of that and we're talking about the American experience. We're talking about the American colonial experience and the westward expansion and what that looked like. We were talking about the second great awakening is what it's called in religious history. And in the midst of that, my professor, a guy named Maury Davis said, I am too. And we're talking really about the difference between basically Baptist and reformed folks. 
right, at the time. That was the big divide. It's between the Baptists and the Reformed folks. And who did what? Like, what was the role of baptism? What was the role of this? What was the role? Dot, 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 dot. And, and I was in a Methodist place, and Methodists uh, baptized babies, but there's a whole, it's a, it's a whole, it was a whole big mess. The line I remember is when he looked, and we were talking about Reformed theology, and I was one of the few people who thought, understood or thought of themselves as Reformed. And he said, I am too American to be reformed. We tend to like to think of ourselves, and this is what he was reflecting on, as masters of our own fate. That I'm the one who decides. And a reformed understanding is one that says God decides. God has authority. And I've reflected on that for 15 years now. What does that mean? Who is the master of my fate? The reality, I think, for me is that if I am the sole master of my fate, I have to realize that it always doesn't work out that well for me. And as we as Americans have to realize it doesn't always work out that well for us. There's an organization called the World Happiness Report, and they do qualitative and quantitative surveys of different peoples in different countries with the same questions to try to figure out who is happy, who is happier, and why. That's what they're trying to figure out. What things make people happy? What organizations and society and structure make people and organizations and everyone like that happy? The United States, which prides itself broadly, we as Americans, uh, if you are an American, if you're a Canadian, we love you too. Um, There you go, Rick. Um, uh, Pride ourselves on the sense that we are the best that we're the masters of our fate. But the reality, my friend, is that according to this and other research that we have, it's not always the case. In the World Happiness Survey, we come out 18th overall. If you want to look at the freedom, what they call the freedom to make life choices category, how free are you to do what you want to, we come in 50 out of 153. If you look at the history of our country, which I love and deeply love and am incredibly proud to be an American, we open the doors up to you can do what you want to some degree, but we open a liability of what that means on the backside. And if we look at American Christianity and American faith, we often do the same thing. When we're the masters of our fate, when we are the captains of our soul, then everything begins to rest and fall on me. I wanna ask a question. Why is it you wake up in the morning? Or really, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Because what wakes you up is an alarm clock. Or maybe your alarm clock is a four-year-old, as mine is. Or someone who comes and pokes you in the eye, or a spouse who rolls over, or the sun getting up. But what gets you up and out of bed. Often in life, we're, we're driven by a couple of major factors. It's, it's success or it's pride um, or it's comfort or wealth. And at the same time, what we know uh, is that those pursuits often at the end of the day 
can end up feeling hollow and lacking. There's a line by uh, the actor and comedian that I like uh, I, named Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, if you're around at a certain time, was in a variety of movies. He's a comedian. He did a whole bunch of things. He was popular in the 90s, early mid 2000s, and then he just stopped, full stopped. Stopped doing movies, stopped doing everything. He could write his own ticket. He was printing money just with any idea that he said out loud. People paid him for it, and he stopped. And at some stage, someone asks him, why'd you do that? And he says, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so that they know it's not the answer. So Jim Carrey quits, and he starts painting, which is what he does now. He occasionally does a movie now and then. Uh, But for the most part, he just paints because that's what he wants to do because he was rich and famous and successful and had everything he ever wanted and at the end of the day felt like it was worthless. We know that finances don't make us happy in the long run. We know that there are thresholds and you can debate about which amount it is. Daniel Kahneman's estimate is the one I tend to find the most influential and he says that when we make over $75,000 a year as a family, if someone were to give you an extra thousand bucks, it doesn't make you any happier. We know that the pride and esteem of our, of our friends and fellows doesn't always work out so well for us either. You only have to look at the effect of what happens on social media to see that play out. And the longer we spend there, and there's lots of research on this too, the longer we spend in that place, you can actually watch happiness and people's contentment decline. And it's a pretty straight correlation. When we are the masters of our fate, the temptations of the devil come screaming at us that say, trust me, put your faith in me, do this, be successful, and it will all be okay, and it will take care of you, and you will be safe and comfortable and secure. But when we understand that God is Adonai, that God is Lord, that Christ is above all, and he invites us to put our trust and faith in him, that is a fundamentally different equation. There's a deep liberation that comes when we relinquish the lordship of our life to God. And, and let's be clear on what that means because sometimes I think we, we wax poetic or theological about this. I don't think it means that when we say that, that suddenly it means that we go and we give all our money to the poor, though some people do that. I don't think it means that suddenly you quit your job and you go uh, to be a foreign missionary, though some people do that. I think it means that we reorientate our life around the questions that Jesus asks and the person that he says we are. When we understand that God is Adonai, or we join in the early Christians who used to say that Jesus is Lord again and again as their life was ending, as they were being persecuted, it's liberating because it reminds us and it lets us embrace the fact that we are not Lord. You are not your paycheck. You are not your grades. You are not your performance. You are not what your friends think about you. You are not what your kids or your parents think about you. When we acknowledge that Christ is Lord, we acknowledge that the words of the Father, when he says, you are my daughter, 
You are my son. With you I am well pleased and with whom I love. When we acknowledge that Christ and God is Lord, we begin at that place and then choose where to engage in the world for truth, for mercy, for justice, for the good news that comes in having an identity that is found that I am not the master of my fate and I am not the captain of my soul. So one final thought for you today, friends. If God is Adonai, if Jesus is Lord, what, do you, what then do you need to do? To let go? To embrace? To try? To hear the words that you are enough? If God is good, which he is, and if God is Lord, which he is, what do you do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be good to us when we're unworthy, when we're broken and sinful, when we do the destructive things and say the destructive things that we don't mean to say and we don't know how they came out and yet there they are. When we lead ourselves astray, when we blow up our lives, when we look back and go, oh God, how did I get here? We know that you're a God who comes to us and rushes towards us. Help us to relinquish and let go of the lordship of our life. God, this day, be our Adonai. Be our Lord. Be our ruler. Give us direction and give us peace for the work you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.